I'm going to argue that's not pivoting with your hips. <laughs> it is, though. This is pivoting with your hips. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, a sports podcast from 538. If you're just joining us, this is a show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is June 25th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the assistant sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by both of my co-hosts. Wow. Look at that. It's a, it's a, it's a great day here who, at 538. Who gets introduced first now? I mean, this is, uh, I think we, we stick with the normal order, even though I'm right here. You guys could just keep talking and I won't introduce you I at all. I am actually technically no, I, closer I, to Sarah. Yeah, I want to be introduced. At the table? I didn't mean to interrupt. Okay. First, <laughs> senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hello, Neil. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> and that other voice you heard is in studio, live with us, sports editor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm well. I just got off the plane, so I'm rested. <laughs> I took a red eye in. I came straight from the airport. And the weather in New York is much horrible. better than the weather it's in Los Angeles. Right? Yeah. Well, it's good to have you both here with me today. Big couple of days in sports. Last night, Giannis Antetokounmpo won the NBA MVP. Do you guys remember the NBA regular season? It no, was like three no, years ago. No, didn't happen. Yeah. He won MVP for that. I feel like I've always said this. The the NBA, maybe more than any other sport, the MVP needs to like include the playoffs, uh, especially since they're going to award it after we've seen the playoffs. And the, and the NBA has long had situations where like, you know, Dirk Nowitzki accepts the MVP like right after his Mavericks team was crushingly knocked out by the <laughs> eight seeded Warriors in the first round or something. And it's just like. Okay, well, that's a little anticlimactic, you know, uh, awkwardly well, standing there posing, trying to force a smile after being eliminated. LeBron had this happen with the Celtics series and the, and the Cavs uh, in 2010. Why don't they just do it before the playoffs start? I don't understand why. They got to count the votes. How long does that take? It's the digital age. Come on, guys. <laughs> just <laughs> manually counting also, I for feel four like, weeks. Yeah. I feel like the NBA MVP conversation is like basically settled. You're not going down to the last day of the regular season seeing like, let me see what James Harden can do in this game, You know, game number 82, yeah. Yeah, yeah. to determine whether he gets my vote. I, this isn't a departure from any of the other sports, though, is it? No, I don't think so. I mean, they're it's all... It's just that the NBA postseason lasts approximately 50 right. times well, as long as so you feel else. more removed. I, d- I yeah. do think also in baseball, there are, like, playoff races that come down to, like, you know, potentially game 163 or something, and the playoffs do tend to kind of have more of an effect, or if they have the same effect as they do in, in baseball as to, like, I don't want to vote for someone as MVP if they're not going to make the playoffs. In basketball, we know who makes the playoffs by, like, November. Right. So, for the most part, uh, for, for anybody that's going to be in the MVP conversation. I do think <laughs> hockey gets it right with the consmith. I've said this to Neil many times, that they give the award for the entire playoffs MVP rather than just the final series. Yeah. Although, isn't it always someone who's in the finals? Yeah, but sometimes a guy could have like a great first three rounds and maybe not a huge star in the last round. Like, go oh, back to sure. the year like Iguodala won. Would he have won that year? I don't know. Yeah, probably not for the whole playoffs. No, it would have um, been like Curry or yeah. something. And uh, also, yeah, in hockey, that's I feel like that's the sport where recently we've seen the t- the 
MVP for the playoffs go to a person on the team that didn't win the championship. It's usually like a goalie. Jeff's shaking his head because he's thinking of John Sebastian Jaguer winning it over Martin Brodeur. That was the only time. In 2003. <laughs> I feel like it's happened more than just that. Maybe I'm thinking of like Ron Hextall in 1987 or something. Anyway, oh hockey talk, hockey history talk. Me and Jeff my in the studio. My eyes to the back of my head. This is a 1990s hockey podcast. Isn't it? I might be in the wrong room. I am in the wrong room then. Or early 2000s, in that case. <laughs> All right. Well, on today's show, we will talk about the Women's World Cup. The U.S. Women's National Team will face France in the quarterfinals. Based on the Americans' performance in the round of 16, we might want to be a little bit worried. And, of course, we just can't let the NBA go as we look ahead to free agency and all of the roster moves before the 2019-2020 season. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. First up, the Women's World Cup. On Friday, we will see a much-anticipated quarterfinal matchup between the U.S. and France. But the U.S. women's team did not cruise to this position, having just squeaked out a win over Spain in the round of 16. The U.S. performance has some skeptical about their prospects moving forward against France. Luke Edwards of The Telegraph ventured to say, maybe the USA aren't as good as they think they are. The U.S. women came into the World Cup full of confidence, and their performance in the first three games of the tournament affirmed their dominant and deep status. Neil, is the change in the narrative around the women's team warranted? I don't think so. I mean, they're still the favorites in the 538 model to win the World Cup by a you know reasonably sizable margin. They have a 29% chance. Uh, we give France, who they're playing, a 22% chance. So basically, like... Whoever wins this has a very good chance to actually win the whole thing. Um, but, you know, I think the narrative, some of it is based on the fact that the U.S. was just like impossibly dominant against truly overmatched uh, <laughs> opposition in the first two games that they played in the in the group stage. And so some of it is probably an artifact of like we're seeing them play like real soccer games and we're like, Oh, they're not going to win 13 nothing every game? Uh, and so, you know, Sweden, good team. We talked about them, uh, I think, last week about how they've sort of always been this presence, uh, this foil to the U.S. Uh, over the years. And, and Spain also, good team. I mean, yeah. they uh, ranked uh, relatively highly using our SPI uh, ratings. They're roughly as good as Sweden, roughly as good as Japan, uh, better than Norway. Uh, so, you know, we're talking about teams that are still in that Spain is roughly as good as. In the U.S., you know, people talked about how they needed two penalties to win that game yesterday. And I don't know. I, I've never found the argument that like needing penalties is like a cheap way to win all that compelling because you get penalties by having the team, the opponent basically desperately foul you when you're in a position to potentially score. And so like penalties are a massive part of soccer and drawing them. Uh, I think when we had Kurt Goldsberry on talking about, um, James Harden's flopping ways in basketball, uh, he mentioned that in soccer, the sensible thing to do is just try to draw a penalty at, you know, any opportunity that you have. And so, you know, if, if those particular plays are going to be such a large part of soccer, uh, and, and goals are always at such a premium, why are we holding it against a team that they, drew those? I mean, we've seen a lot of teams over the years on the men's and women's side advance, you know, through, 
almost exclusively penalties, right. you know, at times. Jeff, you were saying yesterday on the live blog that you were wanting the U.S. to have an open play goal. Do you think the penalties being the only goals well, cheapened I, the win? I, I think this – I said this also on the live blog that I didn't think the second penalty should have been a penalty. Totally disagree with you, but okay. So there's that. <laughs> I, Cleats I think to that's shin a case, is a penalty. I think that's a case where if it were on the other side of that, we being – America, <laughs> we would be not happy. Are you suggesting we're biased? I, there was a little, you know, I was trying to keep keep us honest. Um, but I, frankly, I just didn't think they looked that good. There was a lot of miscues. There was a lot of missed opportunities. There was a lot of, like, passes sailing 30 yards ahead yeah. of the, uh, you know, yeah. intended receiver. Okay, well, let's talk about that. So they had problems on offense and defense. Um, let's talk about defense first. So they had one very notable mistake with bad decisions by both goalie Alissonaire and center back Becky Sauerbrunn, and that led to Spain's lone goal. How much should we be worried about the the way the defense played? I mean, I think it's one miscue, and one miscue that leads to a very bad goal is forgivable. I mean, what it's when it happens the second time right. that I think you have to get a little nervous that maybe your your goaltending is a little shaky. But the problem is, what are you going to do at this point? I mean, you, you can't make a goalie change going into the quarterfinals. And if she does make another bad miscue, that could be the end of the tournament for them. So I, I don't think that we're really at a point where there's a decision to be made. It's just a, something to maybe be a little worried about. I mean, we've been worried about goalie play the whole tournament, even though she wasn't really tested, it still was just kind of shaky. So I think nothing's really changed there. The back line, though, has been very good and was still very good yesterday. The player of the match for me was Crystal Dunn, who was attacked pretty regularly by Spain and had 13 ball recoveries after she averaged only seven per 90 minutes in the group stage. So I think that the back line still played pretty well. I sort of wonder, though, just the counter side of the Crystal Dunn thing is, was she just consistently out of position? Because she was always kind of, you know, chasing down balls. And, 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 you know, she's not a natural fit for that position. Well, she covers a lot of ground for them normally. I think they were definitely picking on her. They were, for sure. sure. But she held up to it, which I guess is what you can... True. The best you can hope for. Okay, well, let's turn to the attack then, which was the other notable problem for them. Alex Morgan, in particular, was very ineffective. Neil, what was going on? Well, first of all, I think she was injured and um, had had to come out of the previous game at halftime. Uh, And so I think she definitely looked like she was still feeling the effects from that. And then you add on a lot of kind of physical beating that she took from uh, Spain and yeah, she wasn't very effective. She wasn't able to kind of chase down a lot of these passes that the the U.S. was making, you know, good passes from the midfield and trying to set up plays, you know, where the forwards could kind of run into it and, and do something with it. But it just felt like there wasn't a lot of burst and there wasn't a lot of, um, you know, ability to go and, and get those balls. Uh, and so... I feel like they should have subbed out Alex Morgan earlier, especially given the sheer amount of talent that they had. I mean, scoring-wise, especially off the bench, that it was weird that the first sub came, what, like 70, 80 minutes into the game or something like that? 85th minute was when the first sub came uh, in. And so that, I think, was why Jill Ellis was getting a lot of criticism in the game, was like, you're in a game where your offense hasn't, especially done all that well uh and you have these players that are clearly injured uh that are you're kind of calling upon to 
behave as if they're at peak form. And you have a lot of people that are well-rested uh, because you've been blowing out everyone. Now, the subs did play, I think, almost all the game in the in the second group mm-hmm. stage game against Chile. But uh, you do have this group that could, you would think, come in and make a difference uh, off the bench uh, when you need offense instead of running out you know, somebody who's clearly hurt. But, again, far be it for me to second-guess the, the coach of – you know, the best team in the world and defending World Cup championship coach. I think we all kind of forget that. And we all kind of put on our our expert hats and try to, you know, kind of second guess. And that's what we do as sports fans. Right. But at the same time, you know, I don't know. I could see the argument that in this particular case, maybe you go to the bench a little earlier. So I think the thinking there was, um, and I don't agree with this thinking, but was if this goes to extra time, the U.S. can really take advantage of its edge on depth because Spain obviously use their subs and are not as deep even remotely. But why even play for extra time? That's what I didn't understand. Just, you know, clearly Morgan was not 100%. You have these amazing subs, you know, that people say like the second best team in the World Cup or is the U.S.'s bench. Um, why not use them? What put it away in ninety? And Morgan was getting pummeled. Yeah, she was, and that was clearly a game plan yeah. by Spain. Yeah. So I'm curious to see whether France. Yeah, you got to think other people are going to use that <laughs> right too, now. Yeah. You, now you do Let's have just the blueprint. Foul Morgan every right. time she gets the ball. Yeah, they they can't call it every single time, uh, and they were definitely not calling the vast majority of of the kind of physical contact that she was taking. And that's why I don't feel bad about it being about penalties at all, because they could have called many more fouls, and some of those could have probably resulted in maybe not penalties, but free kicks. Free kicks, yeah. yeah. So I think, you know, that was definitely the the Spanish plan, and for it to have resulted in two PKs, that that seems My issue, just to clear the record, is more with the penalty kick in general, across all forms sure. of the sport. I don't think the punishment often fits the crime. It's essentially an automatic goal. It seems like a little too much. I, now, Well, unless we you're can Sam go- Kerr in... Uh- <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, of yeah. course, Roberto Baggio. There's famous <laughs> examples of, you know, it not being automatic, of course. But still, I mean, there has to be a better way to do this. There has to be some sort of middle ground. I agree with you, Jeff, because it does seem to create this like very perverse incentive. Like we, as Americans, we, you know, I think the number one complaint about soccer when we're exposed to it uh, on, on this like world stage is the amount of flopping, the amount of trying to get fouled, but especially trying to get fouled in the box. And, uh, you can totally understand why the players do that is because it is such a um, such a massive incentive to try to draw that that penalty and it doesn't often fit the crime and there's no like middle ground where you could be like well you know it doesn't it doesn't qualify for a full penalty kick this near automatic uh, goal but you know there's not it doesn't seem to be a mechanism like even free kicks, you know, you're allowed to kind of stack the players up and, and you're often getting at it at like a very indirect angle and you have to sort of put an amazing sort of kick and, and spin onto it to mm-hmm. be able to score off of that. And some players can do that, you know, your Messi's and Ronaldo's and so forth of the world, but it doesn't seem like there's sort of, uh, there has to be a difference between like a free throw which I think is essentially what a what a penalty kick is, but like in in basketball, one point is like one one hundredth right. of all the scoring you do in all the game. Whereas in soccer, one goal is like half yeah, or one hundred percent of the scoring you do in a game. Yeah. Uh, and and 
you know, there has to be something that's sort of below that, but maybe like uh, along a spectrum. And I don't know what the answer is to that, but it's uh, one of my thoughts. I have thoughts about the, and the rules of soccer. And you're also putting way too much, way too much responsibility in the ref's hands. I mean, imagine, yeah, imagine if it was the Super Bowl and if a ref threw a flag, it was essentially giving the other team, what, 28 points? 21 <laughs> yeah, I mean, points? Can you imagine? One goal is what what did we just I mean it really is like a touchdown or maybe like 10 points I think when we looked at the equivalent scoring between okay, so maybe not soccer. 28 but it would be but like 10. giving a, a like a touchdown and a field goal automatically you're almost automatically it's it, <laughs> I, I always bring up this example and I apologize again for bringing up football clearly I'm my head is just waiting for football <laughs> um it, it's like the roughing the punter roughing the punter is oh, a yeah. terrible penalty yeah. that flips the field back to the it gets an automatic first down 15 yards and then they have running into the kicker which is like five yards maybe a first down but the decision is based on the degree it isn't just an automatic touch the punter and the other team the kicking team gets a first down they, they put a little moderation in there and was that true at first i mean i feel like I the, <laughs> the original version of it didn't have that and then they like quickly realized like oh crap we really need to like not have this be an automatic punishment doesn't fit the crime <laughs> yeah right but then you're putting even more responsibility in the hands of the ref to yeah. decide how bad something is like and the radiations of yeah and defense. there's only That's one true. ref on the field i mean there there are just there are lots of well i have issues with that also okay. should we just spend the rest let's of the just, podcast breaking down all the soccer just, rules I, know, I, really, soccer. I really thought neil was going to pivot there into the offside rule which tony, i also hate tony's so. already left the booth yeah, yeah he's tony, never working tony with us is again. leaving in protest um yeah i think we could probably do like a whole episode maybe during the summer doldrums not just about uh soccer although Although that might have the most instances of rules we hate. But, yeah, things we would fix uh, about uh, sports if we had the chance. I actually oddly don't hate the running clock. I love it. Games are fast. You know what? Keep yeah, it going. I agree with you yeah. on that. Well, one other thing I wanted to touch on about um, about Jill Ellis's decisions, there was criticism of um, Lindsey Horan not playing. She came in in, like, the 89th minute or something. Um, and she had she had a yellow card in Sweden. And so if she had picked up a second yellow card on Monday, she wouldn't have gotten to play against France. Now, of course, you're not supposed to look ahead to the next game, but you do have to do that a little bit. And I think I think the U.S. really missed her yesterday because one of the things she is so good at is progressive passes, getting the ball up and completing those passes in the final third. She's really good at that. And I think they missed that. Well, Rose Lavelle, I think, did a fantastic job for a lot of the game of trying those. But, yeah, the, you, you kind of need that second person to be able to do that. And, like we said earlier, you need the Fords to be able to sort of do right. something with yeah. them and, and be able to play with some kind of pace, which you can't really do if you're playing out there, yeah. you know, hobbled. Yeah. Sam Mewis is also, I mean, she's very good and she did a good job. I just think the the Lindsay Horan gives them a different element there that um that makes them a little more dangerous so she'll be back for france so that she that's part of the reason i'm not maybe as worried as i could be after that game well i think another thing is that france itself did not look overly impressive not just in the preceding game but in the whole tournament so far i mean i sort of bought into the hype of france we we have done this little like picking contest in uh the 538 office for the world cup and 
I confess, I did not pick the U.S. to win. I was one of only three of like the 17 people. <laughs> I know. Traitor to the country. I'm about to get deported. But <laughs> I picked France to win because I bought into all of the pre-tournament hype about, you know, this talented group and they've all played together for so many years. And, you know, it's, it's the best, uh, team to sort of come up to challenge the U.S. in a long time, if not ever. Uh, and so that sort of played into my thinking, but they have not played like that dominating team uh, really at all, I think, throughout the whole tournament so far. And we still have them rated as the second best team in the field, um, you know, kind of a two-point gap in SPI between the U.S. and France, which is basically the same as the gap between France and Germany uh, at number three. But yeah, I, I think that if you're the U.S., you would much rather be catching France at this sort of point in their uh, performance or form or whatever you want to call it than we thought they would be catching them at going into the tournament because everybody had this match circled on their calendar as like this is the de facto world cup final basically i think both teams are probably thinking oh well that there's an opportunity here this other team didn't look as that great in the round of 16 so now it'll be a question of which of them can actually come through in the quarters i think also spain was a better team than a lot of people were giving credit for i mean that that team looked good. I mean, that was not an easy game. And also, we t- it was in many regards. I mean, I sort of throw out that Sweden game. You know, they rested some starters. Mm-hmm. They obviously were looking at the bracket a little bit themselves, thinking if we win this, we get rewarded with getting to play France in the quarters. So I think possibly that could have been going on there, too. So it really was the first game, real you know, game of consequence. Yeah, if you look at the, like the possession percentage for the U.S. was like seventy-two percent uh, in the first two games because they were playing Chile and Thailand, and then you see it drop to fifty-five percent against Spain, and you're like, "Whoa, they've really fallen off." Spain was the second best possession team in the tournament going into the game, behind only the U.S., who again, you know, sort of padded their stats uh, against uh, two overmatched teams. So. I think and, and you could spin it as they actually didn't play poorly in terms of all the facets of the game. The one thing that jumps out to me in the stats is just that they only completed 58% of their passes in uh, the attacking third. And I think that is sort of speaking to what you were talking about earlier, Sarah, about just the passing, you know, and the being able to sort of put people in a position to, to score uh, wasn't quite there. And actually that possession number was an improvement from the friendly in January where they uh, beat Spain one nothing, they actually lost the possession battle. So they, you know, it could have been even worse. Yeah, I do think our our like our vision of it is skewed by those early games. They won the possession battle. That's still against a team that has that's, that's so good. Their main thing. Yeah, like <laughs> that's really good. So it, it you know it looked sloppy and it it didn't look like what we were expecting it to look like. But I don't think that means doom for the U.S. Now if they lose on Friday. It means doom. It means doom. That's, that's, that's by definition doom. Yeah. We'll come back and stitch together all these takes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll delete this from the internet. All right. Well, let's leave that there and move on. But first, let's pause for a word from one of this week's sponsors, ButcherBox. Summer is here, and you know what that means. It's barbecue season. ButcherBox offers more than 20 cuts of meat in customizable boxes, from grass-fed beef and free-range organic chicken to wild-caught sockeye salmon from Bristol Bay, Alaska. And the meat is delivered right to your door with free shipping. ButcherBox works closely with the best farms and companies committed to raising animals humanely with no added hormones or antibiotics ever. 
and a month's worth of the meat from ButcherBox comes out to less than six bucks a meal. ButcherBox is offering new members free bacon for the duration of your subscription, plus $20 off your first box when you sign up at ButcherBox.com slash takedown. Neil just sat up straight in his chair at the mention of free bacon. That really Someone got say my... something about free bacon? <laughs> you heard that right, Jeff. That's free bacon for the duration of your subscription, plus $20 off your first box at ButcherBox.com slash takedown. Once again, that's butcherbox.com slash takedown. Let's move on to the NBA. The NBA never stops. Though that is what I know for sure right now. It, it, it's never, never going to stop. Last week, the NBA draft went mostly as predicted. This Sunday marks the beginning of free agency. But for those two huge events, does the NBA have the order wrong? Here's ESPN analyst Bobby Marks on Get Up with his frustration with the setup. I thought the NBA lost last night. I think if you polled all 30 teams, I think you'd have a majority of teams that would like to do free agency before the draft. Neil, what is the argument for waiting on the draft until after free agency? I think certainly the free agents have much more of an immediate impact and sort of shape the direction of your franchise for years to come, whereas maybe Zion Williamson does that for the Pelicans, but there aren't that many other uh, draftees that sort of work into that. But I think if you're running a team, you always want to have more information about what your situation is at any given time, and you nowadays more than ever and i think we talked about this that free agency shapes the whole destiny of your franchise and you're sort of flying in blind into the draft well with the current setup jeff who benefits from this like is there a reason we would want the draft to be first i really can't think of one to be honest because it, it you think about the teams involved like the, the look just look at the two teams that were most outspoken about the free agency coming after the draft it's the celtics and the rockets who are making all these like crew they sort of have their core in place and they're making these crucial roster decisions surrounding free agency and having the draft afterwards would allow them to like fill specific needs we're not talking about like amassing you know a super team this is really just rounding out a roster for a contender whereas the teams where the draft is most important in terms of like frontline talent are the teams that Probably, you know, the Pelicans and the teams, the the Grizzlies, the teams that aren't going to be big players in free agency anyway, the teams that are rebuilding, um, which they could do easily after free agency and it wouldn't affect anything. What what really affects them is the lottery. Um, just right. look at the Knicks. Uh, <laughs> oh, who are, always. Who are lost at sea now because of the lottery, essentially, <laughs> and because of a certain injury. But so and because I, of a certain I don't owner. actually I don't actually see the argument for putting the draft ahead of time. I mean, you look at the NFL. I mean, not to say their draft is exactly the same. It's actually quite different. But their free agency is is done way before that. Yeah, and I, I, again, I wouldn't. Uh, overstate too much that this is just the way it's always been done and it's sort of a relic of how the league operates in the offseason more than anything else the draft why is the draft ahead of free agency because the draft's always been ahead of free agency and the draft's a lot older than free agency too i mean the teams didn't have free agency uh or, or players didn't have it until the 80s 
we could go back further and find, you know, the moment where the draft, uh, there was like a territorial draft where you got to choose players that were only from, like, went to college in the region where the team was and all kinds of weird things. That should definitely come back. We should do a story on who it would benefit the most. And would would you consider someone to be a territorial pick if they went to college near the team or, you know, if they grew up around there? How do you deal with people like, you know, Kevin Durant who went to a prep school, uh, not where he uh, grew up? Uh, and, and sort of graduated high school there. These are things that we've thought about when we've done stories <laughs> about which regions produce the most talent in the mm-hmm. NBA. Uh, it's not New York. That's was sort of the impetus behind that story. But anyway, so basically there's a lot of like weird artifacts uh, in the way that sports have all sports, but basketball has come into focus here, the way they've always done things. To the NBA's credit, they've been a lot more proactive about thinking about changing things uh, and and not just standing on tradition. All right, so what free agents are we watching as free agency actually opens? Well, I think the biggest one's Kawhi. I mean, this is interesting to me, obviously. Yeah, does Um, he stay now? I don't know. I mean, he's just like a such a strange dude it's like i don't know what he's thinking (laughs) um i mean you would think like the whole point of free agency in the recent years is to like go ring hunting you know that's that's what these the you know garnett was trying to do and durant was trying to do and all this so now he has a ring he's in the fourth biggest city in north america it's a big market it got a lot of fans why not why not stay i mean you know they always say like the players love going to toronto and it's like a fun city to be an nba player and again i don't know if Kawhi fits (laughs) he's a fun he's a fun guy (laughs) (laughs) so maybe he does stay i mean i i'd be interested to see i mean there's always talk of him going back to the clippers that's the other team that's like the big that's the big candidate he's got a good situation there i mean he's got a good team around him and good you know good running mate i mean he's got a lot there so but I, don't know. I mean i don't know i do think it's kind of telling that like obviously some of this was due to uncertainty about Kawhi returning to the raptors but the raptors championship odds we just did a story about sort of the next day odds uh, to win the nba championship in 2020 which came out like literally hours after the raptors had won in 2019 uh they dropped to fourth best they were behind the lakers they're still they're behind them now especially after the anthony davis trade was completed but i think you know the raptors have some free agents mark gasol is another kind of domino that would have to come back but i think there's also a sense that are we sure that this Raptors team didn't uh, capture lightning in a bottle? I think that's what the markets might be looking at. Now, we could point to, we have said... Our model? Our model, <laughs> yeah, has has been sort of at odds with uh, the the markets for a while that, that they never believed in the Raptors. So why would they start believing in them now? But I do think that there is a sort of a sense that if he comes back, brings back the same group, they would not be favored or they might be co-favored at best to win the championship just because there still isn't a sense of was this a one-off playoff run would they be able to replicate it especially as some of these other teams maybe not in the east but in the rest of the league sort of have the potential to grow and and become challengers what about the other free agents out there neil who are you watching well i think um the one that everyone has had their eye on the whole time and Kawhi is sort of just elbowed his way into the same class as is kevin durant Now, Kevin Durant will miss all of next season because of uh, the injury that he suffered in the NBA Finals. And I'm really curious as to how that, you know, plays into the free agency process for him, because I don't think it's going to change 
that there are suitors and and the particular teams that even try to offer him a max contract. I mean, everybody is going to be willing to basically have pay Kevin Durant to do rehab for a year on the chance that he comes back and sort of swings the title in their direction uh, the following year. But I wonder how his injury plays into his odds of going back to Golden State. And he's another guy that's like famously inscrutable in terms of his um, his, his mentality about these he's things. He's clearly going to the Knicks. I think it's very obvious. You think it's clear? Point. But look at the Knicks situation. I mean, they did this Porzingis trade. They freed up all this cap space. Well, yeah, we know the Knicks slots. want him. No, but what I'm saying is, does it? Do the other possible landing spots? I guess you could make the argument for staying at Golden State, but I don't think the other the other landing spots make as much sense as they do with New York paying for a year of rehab. That just seems perfect. <laughs> I mean, it does seem very unbranded. Straight out of their playbook. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's exciting. What about Kyrie Irving? Where are we thinking he's going to end up? Well, there's a lot of Brooklyn talk with him, right? Uh, yes. That sort of the the Celtics have basically from the you know the reports that I've read and everything, it's almost like you know they've accepted the fact that he's probably going to leave. Uh, and and if I were the Celtics after last year, I'm not even sure how necessarily upset you know I would be compared with maybe the the prospect of losing him what you thought about going into the season because it was just such a disastrous season. I think in a lot of different ways for the Celtics, Kyrie probably needs a fresh start as well. What's interesting to me, we do this Carmelo projection system. We've spoken about it before uh, that tries to look at comparable players from the past and project out their future value based on, you know, the player's own age and performance, but also the similarity of trajectories that other players had from history. And it has Kyrie as the third best free agent in this class. So you might be thinking, oh, that's not a surprise. You got Kawhi and KD above him. Actually, according to Carmelo, there are two other players that have more value than Kyrie, KD, or Kawhi in terms of projected next five-year you know, wins above replacement. And those are Kimball Walker and Jimmy Butler. Butler, I could kind of see. Walker is an interesting one for me that I'm not totally buying what the computer is spitting out. But one of the things we've done with Carmelo this year is we've incorporated shot defense. So basically, how good is a player, instead of trying to estimate defense uh, by looking at the effect when you're on the court and then looking at the team when you're not on the court and trying to kind of infer your defensive effect off of that, we have incorporated specific like, you know, when a player shoots uh, and they usually shoot a certain percentage, how does the defender affect that and you know how many points do they save basically on shot defense uh per 100 possessions and Kimball Walker actually shows up really high in that metric which we're tentatively calling I don't know if I should say this on the air but I'll I'll just say it anyway we're calling it Draymond defensive <laughs> oh, rating accounting for yielding minimal openness by nearest defender Draymond oh, wow it's so Wow, it's so it just lucky rolls right off the tongue. It's so lucky that all those words spelled Draymond. Wow, what a that's what a amazing. coincidence! Yeah. Right, a coincidence. They this had, on the, they had those words, yeah, and then they looked at the first letter and right. they're like, well, "Look at this! Oh it my god, this Draymond. happens it's to spell Draymond. Eureka! Yeah. So anyway, according to Draymond, uh, <laughs> Kimball Walker is one of the best defensive guards in the league, and that sort of boosts his uh, his statistical uh, projection, according to Carmelo. But, I don't know. I You know, yeah. I stuck with the model. You're through, a long-time model I am, believer. I am, a, I am a model defender. 
Kemba Walker, wow, is the best the best free agent. That's 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 a stand. It's a little tough. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> tough to understand. I mean, I think uh, also some of it is affected by Kevin Durant's injury. You know, not not having a year out of the five year projection does sort of eat into one's uh, projected potential. I would say, but the one that's interesting low to me is Kawhi Leonard that he doesn't rise higher and some of that is because you know we're coming off of this great playoff performance and we have this image of Kawhi as being rightly so a superstar that can lead a team to a championship but because he had a great playoff performance and he is one of the greatest players in recent history at boosting his performance in the playoffs relative to the regular season, that does mean that his regular season numbers are, when you look at them, not all that amazing. I mean, they're still good, they're great, but they're not top of the league, and that's what you get when you have one of these players that sort of flips a switch and plays much better in the playoffs is, you know, the regular season, which does account for 82 games and playoff positioning and all of these things, that's where sort of you're projecting your wins above replacement. He doesn't score as highly. It's the classic problem. The, the answer really is just a shorter season. Oh, and, I was going to say the answer was to play at 100% of your capabilities in both the regular season and the well, playoffs. Well, that is crazy talk. Neil. But you can't do that. <laughs> shorter season, even longer off season for us to still right. be talking about the NBA, obviously. I mean, we'll right. never stop talking about the NBA. Started at Christmas. Yeah, that's right. what people exactly. always say. Yeah, that makes I, a lot I'm, of sense. I'm on board. All right, that's our the official hot takedown stance. We sold another sport. Okay, well let's leave this there. Um, before we move on, we'll hear from this week's other sponsor, Exxon Mobil. Plants capture CO2. What if we could help industrial plants capture it too? Think how we could help lower emissions. More and more scientists think carbon capture is key to reducing CO2 emissions globally. It's one way ExxonMobil is helping industrial plants be more like plants. That's the unexpected energy of ExxonMobil. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Start us off, Neil. So I want to talk about sports board games. And the reason I want to talk about this is because uh, so my wife she is a uh, big video game player but she's been a little disappointed with the state of games so far this year there's one particular game that came out early in the spring that was horrifically disappointing and I think she sort of was like look I'm going to give video games a little rest. I, I want to turn to board games as a potential you know, outlet for, for wanting to play. Sports video games or just it, more like a... Certainly not. Yeah, I want okay. to know. Wait, wait. Which okay. video game was horribly disappointing? It was a game called Anthem, uh, which was made by BioWare, which is my wife's favorite game developer. None of that is important. <laughs> but it do, was a, do you play these games with her? No, not really. Uh, I... I really play like racing games and the occasional like NBA 2K, but uh, franchise mode, that kind of thing, but not, I'm not as avid. Anyway, so she started to get into board games, but I wanted to also introduce sports board gaming to our board gaming habits because I just, you know, that's my thing. Yeah. It is my thing. Uh, and so, uh, as Sarah can attest, I got Stratomatic, which I had played as a, as a child, uh, and we played some of it. And it's very realistic. It's also a little too realistic in terms of, you know, you, you sort of set your lineup. You can do some strategic things, but often it just comes down to the dice rolls. And, 
you know, uh, the 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 way that it simulates baseball is a little too much like real baseball in terms of <laughs> you, sometimes you have big innings, most innings you don't it's score boring. at all. You say it's boring. <laughs> I'm trying to dance around <laughs> saying that. But yeah, so a sport like baseball, which some have said is boring, apparently Sarah thinks that. I love oh, baseball. what are you talking about? <laughs> Sarah does watch like every Twins game. In an effort to maybe find a sports board game that was maybe less realistic, but in a good way, more exciting, I stumbled across this game that I remember playing when I was in like middle school uh, and hadn't really thought about it since, but it was called MLB Showdown. So it's sort of like Stratomatic in the sense that every player has a... Uh, a rating that sort of dice rolls determine uh, whether their card or the pitcher's card, so a hitter's card or a pitcher's card, sort of uh, determines the outcome of the at-bat. And they have a little table on the card that if you roll a D20, that's a 20-sided die, uh, in a certain way it leads to, you know, sometimes it leads to an out. Sometimes it leads to a home run. It's roughly in proportion to what the player actually did in reality. Um but there are also these strategy cards that you can play where, you know, if it's a do or die situation, you can play this card selectively, hold on to it the whole game, knowing you might need it, that like increases your player's, uh, you know, outcome by five points or something, you know, when they're rolling uh, to try to, you know, make a last ditch effort to, to score runs. You're casting a spell. Basically, yes, exactly. <laughs> and you know what? The game, MLB Showdown. Is there Showdown, a Dungeon Master? <laughs> no, there, no Dungeon Master necessary, uh, but it, it, it is made by Wizards of the Coast who uh, also made Magic the Gathering. So it is sort of, it was their attempt to kind of create a uh, collectible card game that appealed to sports fans. I think it failed in that regard because it was, I don't know who the target audience is, aside from apparently me, 20 years later uh, because it was too it was like not complicated enough for the hardcore baseball simula simulation enthusiasts that just played Stratomatic and it was also I think they were trying to appeal to casual people but casual gamers weren't really into the prospect of baseball to begin with so they weren't being like "Eh, this is a this is a fun version of baseball let's play it only i have said that (laughs) but apparently not because i was able to find online there's a group of people uh that actually make updated versions of these mlb showdown cards and i should say this game has not been in print for about 15 years uh when i got it it was 19 years ago and it's amazing to me that they are making cards for Noah Syndergaard and Jacob deGrom uh, and, and some players who aren't Mets even. Uh, and so uh, they actually made a set of uh, cards for every 2018 team uh, in baseball, which I find uh, incredible. The thing data-wise I wanted to talk about, just to kind of bring it back around on this, is the card that broke MLB Showdown. So the early versions of this game, when they first came out, they thought they had a good handle on things. You know, Wizards of the Coast, uh, experienced card game makers, and they also had a lot to draw from, not just Stratomatic, but there's a long history of baseball board games that sometimes they use spinners to decide, you know, uh, what happens on a plate appearance. Sometimes they use dice. This one uses dice. And so they were like, okay, 
we've got a pretty good handle on like the 2000, the 2001 baseball season. Well, along comes Barry Bonds, <laughs> who in one season had a 512 on base percentage. And the whole game is based around sort of like you have an on base rating for the batter and a control rating for the pitcher, which gets added to the uh, 20 sided die. And then you compare the two. And if the batter uh, ties the pitcher's roll or higher, they get advantage. Well, Barry Bonds happened to have a number that couldn't be replicated on his card because he hit a home run so often. He, If you were making a card for Bonds under the original rules of MLB Showdown on a 20-sided die when he had advantage, only one of those 20 outcomes would be an out. Uh, wow. Ten of them would be a walk. Right. <laughs> uh, six of them would be a home run. Oh, my gosh. And so... He basically broke the game, and it's no coincidence, these people that sort of still keep up the game and are enthusiasts, they believe that uh, Wizards of the Coast around about 2002 came out with a radically different sort of scaling of the player ratings that actually made the later versions of the cards incompatible with the earlier versions, which kind of sucked if you were playing it because then you were like, okay, what do I do with these old ones? You either have to play according to the original rules or you have to play according to the new ones but they sort of widened the range at which uh certain you know skills could could play out and then muted the player card uh rolling uh, as a result to try to keep them from becoming overpowered but it was all in an effort to be able to better simulate Barry Bonds's ridiculous actual real life stats and what's really crazy is even after doing all that if you go through the math of his card his 2002 card or whatever it was so the year after he hit uh, 73 home runs, if you go through that and try to work out what the implied on-base percentage would be against like an average pitcher based on the dice rolls and everything, you still have a lower implied on-base percentage from his card than he actually wow. had in real life. So Barry Bonds broke this game, but there are people that are sort of reviving it. And I would encourage people to go to greatestmlbshowdown.blogspot.com. Yes, they use a blogger account, which also just adds to the <laughs> whimsy of all of it. Uh, and these these guys are making updated versions of this card game that probably hasn't existed in 15 years. Not sure why anyone would want to play it except me, because it is fun, and I love baseball. And there you go. That's the rabbit hole couple follow-up questions. <laughs> Please go ahead. <laughs> Why not just take Bonds out of the game? Well, I think in some, uh, like, they would have tournaments. Uh, at... No, Barry Bonds, spell casting. Well, yeah, no, I think he became, his card basically became like the Bo Jackson of Tecmo Super Bowl type uh, right. thing, where it's like house rules, you can't use Barry Bonds because he's too broken. <laughs> but, I mean, again, I can't emphasize enough, his card was broken, and like unbeatable and a ridiculous advantage and still was actually like not as good in terms of as the real expected on base percentage as the real Barry Bonds. Well, he also kind of broke real baseball. He broke real baseball. In addition to this game. So sense. so that sort of checks out. Yeah, it does. It was a better simulation than they ever could have dreamed, I think. I have a follow-up question. Please go ahead. Stratomatic. Yes. Is a fun game. How many games of Strato have you won? Neil. Well, I've played probably since we started picking it up in March, I guess. Mm -hmm. I've probably played a dozen, and I've won like one, and it was under questionable circumstances where like it, the, we ended the game early or something like that, but I'm probably like 
one and eleven, or maybe like zero point five and eleven point five in all of my games that I played. I've never beaten you, no, you for been. instance. No. Um, we play as di- different when, teams. When do you guys play? We played a few times. You know, this is what happens. I feel a little left out. I feel a little left out. I didn't know there was a Stratomatic club. Jeff, would it, would, <laughs> if, if you knew about that, would, you, would it have changed uh, your, your move out to the, to the West Coast? <laughs> sure. Just yes. say yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would have kept me back. That would have changed everything. <laughs> All right. What a fun rabbit hole. Thank you for that, Neil. I think that will do it for this week's show. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. This is still a new podcast, so if you like what you heard, please subscribe. And be sure to review and rate the show. It really does help other people discover the program. You can also email us at podcast.538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff in the studio, both of them, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.